It's 1980, and Joan London is sitting in her apartment in the Lincoln Square area of Manhattan. I was 30 years old, and I'd only been in New York for a couple of years, and I was still, like, fresh and young and kind of unsure of myself. Joan was originally from Sacramento, California, and had moved to New York to accept the job on WABC, the local news station. I started in California as a weather girl. That's what they called us back then. And that was way before women were ever getting any kind of significant television jobs. So I was constantly trying to prove myself. What Joan didn't know was this mission to prove herself was about to pay off. I'll never forget, I picked up the phone and it was my agent. And he said, Joan, congratulations. You You got got the the job. job. You're the new co-host of Good Morning America. I hung up the phone. I was a little dumbfounded. I mean, to be honest, I was kind of scared shitless. But I just kind of pulled myself together and I looked in the mirror. Joan took the moment to herself, using it as a chance to hype herself up. You can do this, she told herself. You've got this. They hired you for a reason. You are going to be waking up America every day day. Her pink lips pursed into a smile ear to ear. She walked back to the phone to call her mother in California to tell her the good news when it rang again. I mean, I figured it was my agent calling back to tell me something about the deal that he had forgotten to mention. It wasn't her agent. It was her OBGYN. I almost couldn't believe my ears when I heard those words. You're pregnant. Joan gripped the receiver in her hand, a flood of emotions filling her body. This is what she had wanted, right? She and her husband had been trying to start a family, and now it was happening. But the job. I knew it was going to be, you know, a challenge. But at that moment, I just made this decision that I was going to figure out a way to make it work. You have to think about the time. This was 40 years ago, and things were really different. No one had ever been pregnant on TV as a news anchor. In fact, you couldn't even say the word breast, let alone talk about breastfeeding. But Joan, not one to give up, convinced the executives at ABC to let her bring in her new daughter as she started the job. Boy, having little baby Jamie at work, she was kind of like the office mascot. I mean, I'd be, you know, interviewing a head of state, and Jamie, meanwhile, would be in the office playing with my assistant and the hair and makeup people. It wasn't unusual for me to come off set. And as she got older, I might find her in the arms of Sammy Davis Jr. or maybe chatting with Jim Henson. That's right. Jim Henson, as in the creator of The Muppets. You can see this and the Sammy Davis Jr. photo on our podcast Instagram account. It's at Gratitudeology. Anyway, it was a pretty idyllic life, some might say, and Joan was quite the role model. As women everywhere saw me, you know, making this work, having a baby at work with me, I actually had women coming up to me in public restrooms thanking me for making it feel okay to be a working mom. You'd think with such an amazing upbringing, this little girl would just rocket launch to her own successful life as she got older, that she'd follow in her mom's footsteps and cruise through life, taking on all adversity head on, just like her pioneering mama. That's not exactly what happened. 
I don't think I really understood what was going on. I just knew it wasn't good, and I was terrified. You see, Joan would watch as the road that she had traveled hit a fork for her daughter, and the different path she chose at that fork would nearly take her down. It almost took her life. I'm familiar with that road because I am that daughter. My name is Jamie Hess, and my journey took me to some pretty dark places. Today, I believe that those who have seen the darkness see the light that much brighter. I feel like I didn't fully wake up until I almost died. And I woke up all right. Today, I'm a media personality, wellness expert, TEDx and keynote speaker, and coach. Jamie Hess. Jamie Hess. Jamie Krause Hess. Jamie Hess. NYC FitFam founder, Jamie Hess. And it all came from this deep sense of gratitude. Let's face it, when you almost lose your life, just waking up every morning is a gift. Feed me something real. Don't leave me hanging here. I eventually built my empire brick by brick using this perspective of deep gratitude as my foundation. And it occurred to me that every other badass baller I've ever met entrepreneurs, celebrities, thought leaders, they so often have a story of overcoming adversity and how it ultimately led them to see life differently. Quite simply, I believe that an attitude of gratitude is the key to happiness. That's why I'm traveling across the country, interviewing some of the most influential and successful people on the planet and asking them one very important question. Tell me that story. We're going to go deep and find that moment where they turned pain into purpose, fear into fuel, and how it spurred their success in all things afterwards. You'll hear from some of the biggest names in pop culture, the world of wellness, and the entrepreneurial landscape. The stories they'll tell are not the same old stories you've heard a thousand times before. In fact, buckle your seatbelt. It's going to be a bumpy ride, but any journey worth taking has its bumps. That just makes getting to the finish that much sweeter. Well, on that note, let's dive in, because on today's episode, I'm going first. Welcome to the Gratitudeology Podcast. Would you walk through the fire? Would you ride through the storm? Will you walk on a Jamie was always a bit of a free spirit. Okay, so back to the Good Morning America days and my mom's opinions when she got home from work one day only to find me with a new do. I remember walking into the house and Jamie walked out of the bathroom with this bright pink foam just kind of bubbling on her head. And I looked at her and said, please tell me that the color of that foam in no way resembles the color your hair is going to be. Her response, your expectation for me to have a normal hair color is an unrealistic expectation of the 80s. I figured this kid's got to become a lawyer. 
My mom was America's mom. She represented the perfect working mother, as American as apple pie. Her daughter was not supposed to have pink hair and piercings. Yes, I had my belly button, nose, and tongue pierced. No, I was supposed to follow in her footsteps. And I tried. Here I am on Take Your Daughters to Work Day, interviewing my favorite author at the time, Mary Higgins Clark. And the queen of suspense joins us this morning. And because it's Take Our Daughters to Work Day, and because she's a very, very big fan of Mary Higgins Clark, my oldest daughter, Jamie, is my co-host for this part of the uh, show this morning for the interview. You ready to hear my sweet interview skills? I think I really nailed it, guys. You say accuracy is very important in your books. How do you research ghosts? But my mom was right about one thing. I was a mega fan of Mary Higgins Clark and many other authors, too. I was a bookworm, escaping into the world on a page. This is because I was hiding. I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere in the real world. I'd retreat into my room and read books or write poetry. I'd blast Tori Amos and burn incense. I'd journal about feeling misunderstood and wanting to find my place in the world. Looking back, I felt like everyone else just got the handbook for life, and I didn't. I don't think this was such a unique feeling. I think lots of young teens feel this way, but I think having a parent on TV who America admires and looks up to so much, it kind of amplifies that feeling that you're supposed to be perfect. And because I just didn't know how to do that, I ran the other way. And I ran hard. As the bus stops in front of my new school, I take a deep breath. The year is 1995. Waterfalls by TLC is one of the top songs on the radio. Seinfeld was on everyone's TV. And I was newly attending Greenwich High School. Go Cardinals! Oh, who am I kidding? I had no interest in football. My sights were set on something a little higher. Literally. You see, I had begged my parents to let me switch schools, and they let me. Reluctantly. My mom looks back on this time. You talked me into going to public high school, and we had moved to Greenwich, Connecticut, as I was divorcing your dad. And you could sell ice cubes to Eskimos, which is why I always thought you were going to end up being a lawyer. I had been at a private school for the first 10 years of my life. And looking back, I didn't really appreciate it or the sacrifices my parents had made to send me there. I think I was just too young to get it. I just felt like this school is too stuffy and conservative. And couldn't all these people see I was a free spirit who was deep and dark and twisty inside and listened to Pink Floyd and was totally wild and wore fishnets and Doc Martens and had pink hair and was complex and moody and burned incense and wrote poetry and... Yeah. So they finally let me switch to the much bigger and more liberal public high school. Looking back, my mom also had another reason she felt like she acquiesced. And let me be honest and raw. When you're a working mom and you're just trying to keep your head above water, sometimes it's easier to say yes than to continue on the fight to say no. And I think I did that a lot of times and it got me into trouble, got you into trouble. You came to Greenwich High School, you didn't know Seoul. And unfortunately, the first people you met were like a bad crowd. Okay, so let's talk about it. So here I am in the student center during my first week of school. I get my tray of food at lunch and look for a table to sit at, and then I see them. Across the sea of jocks, geeks, cheerleaders, and stoners, I see my people. 
crazy color hair, piercings, and outfits I could only categorize as 90s raver style. I was immediately drawn to them, much like I had always been drawn to anyone who had the courage to display their bold authenticity unapologetically. I thought it was cool. So they take me in. So here I am, finally feeling accepted, and I'm starting to vibe. So about a week later, I'm sitting at the lunchroom table with them, these new friends of mine, when a girl grabs my hand and invites me outside with her and a group of guys. I scurried out after them. They ducked behind a stone wall and pulled out cigarettes. I took one and I pretended I knew what I was doing. I took a puff and a guy took out a stack of flyers and started passing them out. He pressed one into my hand and winked at me. See you there? I looked down at the crisp neon piece of paper in my hand. I immediately knew what I was looking at and I wanted in. So before I go any further, let me explain the 90s rave scene. I remember hearing about raves on the ABC News show 2020. It's Friday night. Do you know where your teenagers are? This could be the night your child ventures into a secretive and potentially dangerous world. The world of the rave. Well, until now, few adults have seen what goes on at a rave, and the reasons will become apparent. So I heard that warning, and while I'm sure their intent was to incite fear, I was like, where do I sign up? It all started for me with the attraction to the music, right? The counterculture, the escapism, that feeling of belonging to a community. But I knew there are drugs there too. It wasn't like my parents hadn't told me that drugs were bad. They had. But I wanted to escape the reality of living between my two ears so badly that this felt like as good a vehicle as any, which is how I found myself in some other teenager's vehicle on my way to my first rave. I was 15 years old. In one way, that night was the beginning. In another, it was the end. It was the beginning of an entirely new chapter that would come to change me, define me, give me so much life, and almost bring me my death. It was the end of my innocence. Because that was the first time I did a hard drug. That night I took ecstasy, which the kids today call Molly. But I remember taking the drug, it's a pill. I sat down for a bit to enjoy the music. For a while, I thought maybe it was a dud, you know, because I didn't feel anything. Then it hit me. I leaned forward and I took a deep breath and my entire world changed. In that moment, I felt escape. I felt happiness. I felt bliss. I felt a deep connection to the music, to my friends, to life. We raved until dawn and then hobbled home to sleep it off. And when I woke up, all I could think about was when it would happen again. And therein lies the problem. I was always wired for more. There was nothing scarier than the thought of coming down or letting the party end. And so I didn't. My vibe for the next several years could be classified as my chasing a buzz era. But if I'm being honest, that's kind of belittling it. These were serious drugs, and I was on them all the time. So rave drugs at that time included things like ecstasy, LSD, ketamine, crystal meth, and cocaine. I look back at my teenage self now, and I just want to scoop her up and save her. But I wasn't ready to be saved, and I was very good at hiding what I was doing. So you might be wondering, why did my mom let me do this? Well, the short answer is she didn't. Well, not really anyway. You would come to me and you'd say, can I go to a rave? 
And I said, what's a rave? And you told me that it was kind of like going to a concert or going to a dance where there was live music. And I thought, well, I went to dances when I was a teenager with live music. We didn't do anything bad. So I said, okay. I had no idea what I was saying okay to. So keep in mind, this was the 90s. So it was before a lot of this stuff had become mainstream. So she just had no idea what was happening. But also, she couldn't have guessed how deep I was in trouble because on the outside, I did a really good job of keeping it together. In fact, I was a nationally competitive athlete. I had been a horseback rider since the age of seven. My first pony, Buddy, was my first love. And it just rolled on from there. I won the National Pony Finals in 1991 and the Children's Jumper Finals in 1994. By the time I was well into my teens, I was a serious competitor. Check out a picture of this time on Instagram at Gratitudeology. In 1996, I competed in the Washington International Horse Show Equitation Finals in D.C. Every junior competitor in the equestrian show jumping world dreams of competing in the National Equitation Finals. Placing in this competition, which brings together the top 100 or so riders from all over the country, is a dream for most. And in 1996, I won the finals. At that time, I was the youngest competitor to ever win it. It was a dream come true. A blur, really. I remember applause erupting, cameras flashing. I was interviewed by a dozen or so media outlets. Then as I walked out of the arena on cloud nine, I looked down and I saw my best friend's number come up on my phone. When I called her back, she was in hysterics. One of our friends had died. He was 20 years old. He had been intoxicated on ketamine and he had fallen in a friend's swimming pool. He didn't stand a chance. And this would be the cadence for the next few years. This wacky juxtaposition between competing at a high level of sport, wanting to perform well in school, at life, but simultaneously falling farther and farther down the rabbit hole of this toxic lifestyle with people who were just as lost as I was. I got a call from the police and they came and they sat down with me in the house and they said, we need to warn you that your daughter is being seen around town in some bad places with some bad people. And I said, well, you know, I think she smokes pot and drinks a little. And they said, whoa, no, 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 no. We're telling you that the people she's with, the company she's keeping are into bad things. And so I would come to you But you were so good at talking that you would talk me out of it. You would convince me that they were wrong. See, I thought I was living this hippie utopian dreamscape where it was all music and vibes and a concept that 90s ravers knew as PLUR, which stands for peace, love, unity, and respect. But in reality, I was kidding myself. My life was anything but PLUR. In the summer of 1997, I was at a horse show in the Catskills, which is in upstate New York. I had just arrived and was getting my horse tacked up for a practice ride in the warm-up arena when my phone rang. It was the police. My mom's house had been robbed, and it was my fault. Some of the people I'd been hanging out with the weekend prior had stolen a key and come back when they knew I was going to be away, and they had robbed us. And it was my fault. The level of devastation, shame, and upset is impossible to describe. And this wasn't the last time my troubles would become my family's troubles. And to be honest, we were wading through them all the time. Some of them were mildly comical, I must admit. 
I'll never forget the time when I was still a teenager living at home at my mom's house just outside of New York City. And I got stuck in a nightclub in the city because my friends had gotten kicked out and they were supposed to be my ride home to our hometown. This wasn't just any club night, by the way. It was a Sunday night party. So picture this. When I left the club, it was Monday morning. A normal business day in Manhattan. People were walking around in suits, going to their finance jobs. And here I was at 7 a.m. leaving the club. I took the train from Grand Central home to Greenwich, Connecticut, about an hour train ride, dressed like a character from a bad play, pleather skirt, princess Leia buns, glitter eyeshadow, knee-high platform boots, and the piece de resistance, a boa. When the train pulled into the station in Connecticut, I took a taxi from the train station back to my mom's house where I opened the door and walked inside only to find my whole family sitting, eating breakfast, staring at me like I was completely out of my mind, which I was. I thought it was going to change when you went off to NYU, Mm. but it was living in New York City. It wasn't exactly living on a college campus somewhere. And so by that time, I think maybe, I don't don't really know. The drugs kind of, you know, had the better of you. Yeah. By the time I moved to New York for college, I was so far in. You know, they say drug addiction has three phases, right? Fun, fun with problems, and then just problems. So at this point, I'd say I was moving swiftly through phase number two on my way to phase number three, only I couldn't see it coming. I attended NYU, and I'd pull all-nighters that turned into all-dayers. I went to class and worked hard, but there were many times where I'd roll up to class straight from the club, basically out of my gourd. But I was also ambitious, right? So I refused to fail. So I worked. I showed up. I did my homework. I wanted so badly to make my mom proud, to live up to her standards. And I was determined to take New York City by storm. I just did not understand how normal people could operate without getting high. So I kept on doing what I knew how to do best. Tear through life in a state of contradiction and duality, both killing it and killing myself at the same time. Here's the thing about addiction. When I look back at it all and everything I put myself through, there's a lot that I have to admit made me scrappy. When you put yourself in horrible situation after horrible situation, you have to learn to pull yourself out of them. So you toughen up. There's an element of survival that any addict will tell you they had to take on. Now, don't get me wrong. I completely understand the place of privilege that this is coming from. Many people grew up in awful situations that they got themselves out of, and as a byproduct, they built character. I understand that I put myself in these situations, but we all have our own realities. This was mine. So even if my scars were inflicted through battle wounds of a war, I was fighting only with myself. They're still my scars. They're still the roadmap of this journey that made me, me. So anyway, I'm halfway between surviving and thriving. Depends on the day. But I'm out there. I'm doing the damn thing. I graduate from NYU, get my first job in public relations, and I was intent on making it and not letting anything get in my way. Little did I know, the only thing that could stop me would be me. It's 2002, and I'm standing outside one of New York's hottest nightclubs, holding a clipboard in one hand and a cigarette in the other. Everybody knows that New York City PR girls are the gatekeepers to all things cool. It was the job I had coveted, chased, and now cherished. I really felt like I had made it. 
I'm the holder of the VIP list for crying out loud. I know the gossip columnists at the New York Post, artists like P. Diddy give me a knowing wink as they cruise by me to enter the club. It's a vibe for sure. On one hand, it's what I always wanted. On the other, I'm less and less able to show up for reality. And I know it. At this point, my drug of choice was amphetamines. And I could say for the first time, my brain was fully hijacked. Amphetamines for girls in my position are a tricky thing because you convince yourself you need them to help you stay skinny because they curb your appetite and to work harder because they help you focus. No matter that they also cause you to stay awake for days on end and experience amphetamine psychosis, you know, details, details. So anyway, back to that nightclub door. By the time I was done working the door, I went inside the club to party with my friends. We stayed out late and I was supposed to be meeting my mom the next morning for an interview and photo shoot with Palm Beach Magazine about our relationship as a successful mother and daughter duo. You and I were supposed to get together to do an interview with a magazine, and I'm waiting and waiting, and you don't show up, and I'm calling your house or your apartment. You had moved out of a big, beautiful building into a little walk-up to save money. You know, as I look back, I think, gosh, I shouldn't have let her do that. But when your daughter is in her 20s, you don't always have the ability to tell her she can't make a move. And finally, I just couldn't get a hold of you. So around 5 a.m., when I was getting home from the club, I had been panicked that I wouldn't be able to sleep prior to this important shoot. As I walked around my apartment, berating myself for screwing up again, I decided I'd take something to help me get at least a couple hours of sleep. I think it was Xanax. Well... It worked too well. Next thing I knew, I woke up to my office mates standing over my bed. My mom had sent them to check on me to see if I was awake, alive. Who even knows what she thought? She was so scared. Here's what people don't understand about addiction. Addicts are not bad people trying to get good. We're sick people trying to get well. I didn't die that day, but I remember wishing I had. The feeling of being stuck inside your addiction, of knowing you're letting people down, of being ashamed but not knowing how to fix it, it's a feeling that's hard to describe. The irony is every time something like this happens that you screw up, you want to escape even more. And so you do it the only way that you know how to do it which is to go back down the escape hatch. Over the next few years, I would try to get sober a few times. I would dip my toe in recovery circles, but I wasn't ready to surrender. When you get sober, you learn a few important things. And I started to pick these things up, right? Things like suit up and show up, stop playing the victim and take responsibility. And then of course you're told that you have to wrap your head around prayer and meditation and gratitude. And I tried, but I was so unwell that these things just didn't come naturally to me. I had been so sick for so long. And when you're constantly numbing out, you don't learn coping skills. You learn those scrappy skills, but not emotional tools to get through life. I was emotionally paralyzed. And underneath my veneer of being a party girl, I was holding on to all the same insecurities. I felt not enough. And in order to make that sting less, you end up turning back to the thing you know numbing out. It's that vicious cycle. And if nothing changes, nothing changes. Until, if you're lucky, 
you have a moment. A white light moment. A moment of clarity. Of salvation. I call it the gift of desperation. You're ready to ask for or accept help. I was getting more and more worried about you. It was the middle of winter. It was snowing out. It was freezing. It was blowing. And I got in my car and I drove into New York City. And I went to your apartment building, which was like, you know, it's this little door above a restaurant. And it was a walk up. I didn't have a key. And I kept ringing your bell and ringing your bell. You didn't answer. Finally, somebody came along that lived in the building and opened that door. I went up to that first landing. I was banging on your door. I don't know, five, 10 minutes. Finally, you opened it. And you were like, what? And I said, get some shoes on, get a coat on. You might have been in your pajamas, I don't know. And I made you put some snow boots on and I made you put a coat on. And meanwhile, I had called our family doctor and he had found me a doctor who was an interventionist. And I said, I'm going to go get her. I'm going to find her and I'm going to get her. He said, I will be in my office. And I took you to that office and he had already made calls and found where he thought you should go. We sat there and said to you, you're going to go away. You have to go into rehab. In doing this podcast, I'm sitting here interviewing my mom about this moment that we've never actually spoken about before. She's held guilt. I've held shame. And we've never actually looked back together on all that happened that day. And now, because gratitude is the name of the game here, and I have so much of it, we're finally getting a chance to go there. And like, you know, we went back and got a little bundle together and drove you three hours away to this place out, you know, in the middle of Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. and left you there. I knew that as upset as you were with me that, well, as you said to me later, you should have done it years earlier. And that was like a stab in my heart, but you were so right. And this right here is why I wanted to do this episode first. When I look back on this time in my life, it seems like it was a storm. And so often, we can't see the storm for what it really was until we get out of it. But when I look back now, I I think, why did I stay in it for so long? So I'm asking you, what's your storm? And how long are you willing to weather it? I realized that day that we're only as sick as our secrets. I was too scared to ask for help. My mom was too scared to offer it. And it kept us sick and suffering for so much longer. But look what we almost gave up. This life, each other, all the beautiful things this world has to offer each and every day, all because our egos were too afraid of each other, our spirits too beaten down to stand up tall. Until the day my brave, amazing mother kicked herself in the ass, kicked my door down, and did the hard thing. But I didn't have, I don't know, didn't have the balls to do it, didn't. You were always such a good talker. You would always talk me out of it. And part of it, I mean, to be really raw and honest, I was had this overwhelming public job that was so demanding of my time. I was on the road traveling all over the world. And I didn't want to think that it was happening. And that's part of the issue. 
for parents. You don't want to believe that it's happening, and so you'll put it off. I mean, I should have done it when you were 16, for God's sakes. Mm -hmm. At this point in the conversation, I was able to say to my mom, would you like me to tell you what I was thinking on the other side of that door? And I had picked up the phone to call you at least 50 times to ask for help. I dialed the first three numbers, and I dialed the first four numbers. Every time I would hang up and I would say, I was too embarrassed. I didn't want to disappoint you. So I would say, I can fix this myself tomorrow. Tomorrow's the day. I'm going to fix this myself. I'm going to go back to a 12-step meeting. I'm going to do something. I'm going to call a friend from my community. I'm going to do something to get this under control. Because at that point, I had been in and out of recovery. I had some aptitude for it. I just couldn't stay sober. By the time you came to get me, I just, I was out of options. And I was so grateful that you did the hard part for me because I couldn't ask for help myself. I just couldn't make myself do it. And so we've had this conversation before. I might have said that, but I don't know if you would come any earlier if I would have been ready to listen. But I was so done and I was so ready. And I'm so grateful for you and so grateful that you did that. I'm glad we finally got the, the opportunity to do this. Yeah, me too. I love you. I love you. Oh, that was nice. Okay, We've never really done this. We never really did this. Know. It's called closure. It is called closure. Yeah. So this is a story about gratitude. About how I came to wake up by almost dying. About how my life was saved in that circuitous, windy, messy way that so often life twists and turns and about how our relationships in the world are everything, both to our loved ones and to the spirit of the universe, that beautiful energy that is our higher power, whatever that means to you. For me, I don't care what you call it, but I do care that you open up your heart to feel it. Somebody early on in recovery said, that's all right, kid, you can be an atheist if you want, that's fine. Let me ask you a question. You got a bar of soap? I said, I got a bar of soap. He said, great. In the morning, I want you to go into your bathroom. I want you to write with that bar of soap on your mirror, H-E-L-P. Now that stands for his ever loving presence, but you don't, you don't gotta worry about that. Just write, ask for help in the morning. In the evening, when you come home, you go back in, you wipe it off and you write, thank you. That's thanking the universe for what came that day and for another day sober. That was my first experience with prayer and meditation. And it was wow. the first time I let the idea of a higher power into my life and asking for help from the universe and quieting my mind enough to accept it. That's why I believe so deeply that a sense of gratitude is the heartbeat of happiness. Because the first time I was able to get quiet and humble enough to save myself was when I truly got the sense of gratitude. And so that's what's propelled me forward. And that like gave you resilience then yeah. in the face of that adversity. You know, when I was 13 and my dad crashed in our private plane and was killed, I watched my mom and I watched how she was able to find resilience in the face of real adversity. And she was like a, she just had an effervescence. She was this positive person that always said, you gotta look through, look at life through your rose-colored glasses. And I think it was her gratitude for the life my dad had provided us, the house that we lived in, that allowed her through that incredible 
sadness and devastation to hold on to the goodness in her life. And those are lessons that aren't necessarily told to you. You watch them. Right. You know, I remember when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, within the first 24 hours, I said, wow, you just got a gift. And people wouldn't think of a breast cancer diagnosis as a gift, but I said, you always want to be a doctor like your dad. Hello. You can now go out, take that camera with you into every appointment, learn everything you can, and be that facilitator and tell everybody everything that you know about breast cancer. And in that moment, by snatching that little bit of gratitude and looking at that as a gift, I transform myself from a victim, a patient, into an advocate fighting against cancer. And it changed my entire breast cancer journey in the most positive way. So I've seen how gratitude has helped me, but I've never seen it like it's helped you. To me, like your transformation of your life by being able to let go. And I always said to you, like, you know, don't stay mad. It's better to stay even than to get even. Like, you know, all my little positive thinking acronyms, but, but you really were able to somehow come out of that darkness and hold on to the gratitude of the talent that you had, the beauty that you have, and eventually the husband that you found and the family that you could have. And it ju you just allowed it to blossom. And that then gave you, I think, the confidence and the serenity in yourself that you could start developing the talent that I've watched you develop in the last 10 years with your podcast and, and being on QVC. Those things could only happen after you gained your confidence and really let that resilience, that gratitude be bigger yeah. than all the bad stuff. I believe it's very important and powerful to make your mess your message, but you can only do it after you've healed. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it for episode one of the Gratitudeology podcast. I hope my story gave you a little entry point into the stories we're going to hear together this season. Each episode, we'll hear stories from our incredible lineup of guests to hear how a situation, a season of their life, or maybe even a single moment was a pivot point for them to see the world differently through a lens of gratitude. You see, I believe so strongly that gratitudeology, which is just the consistent practice and application of positive psychology, can really compel peak performance, can help you enjoy life better, can get rid of that toxic anxiety and unhappiness so many of us live with, and it can deepen what I call your purpose matrix from the inside out. The reality is this, you deserve to be happy. And I believe that the key to happiness is having an attitude of gratitude, but it doesn't happen overnight. It's a practice. It takes consistency for it to become a working part of the brain. So buckle up, hunker down, and tune in to every episode of the Gratitudeology podcast. You might just find that it turns that frown upside down and you start to see the bright side of things, even if it happens despite yourself. If we all help each other focus on expanding our attention towards what's good in the world, rather than focusing on what's bad, this world has the potential to be a much more radically awesome place. Stick with me, my friends. I've got your back. We're in this together, and it's a great day to see the greatness in the day. See you next time. Will you walk through the fire? Would you ride through the storm? 
The Gratitudeology podcast is written, executive produced, and hosted by me, Jamie Hess. Sound design and studio production by Gotham Production Studios. Our theme song is Maze by Hills, sung by Nadia Ali. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Gratitudeology. Gratitudeology.